Let's do that. If you have a Bible or a mobile device and you want to follow along with where we're going today, Matthew chapter 14 is where we're going to be. Uh, And before we jump in, um, I want to talk specifically to those of you who are members here at Grace Point. Um, This is the time of year where we nominate uh, potential leaders as uh, for our lay leadership board. And right after service is done, you can go out and do that in the lobby. So if you're a member, I would love for you to take a look at some of the the leadership requirements, take a look at the membership list and nominate some folks that that are going to be part of our leadership over the next year. Uh, If you could do that for me, that would be great um, as we we look at at, at taking care of some of that business. Today, week two of this series, Choose to Lose, we started last week uh, with an admission, or maybe I started last week with admission, um, that I don't like to lose. Um, And some of you can identify with that. Um, And whether you can or not, even if you don't like to lose, you like to win. We all like to win, right? We want to win in business. We want to win in our job, whatever that looks like. Uh, We want to win the stock market. We definitely want to win that. Uh, We want our kids to win. Um, we want our team to win. If you're any kind of competition, um, a sport or, or uh, any, any other kind of competition, you want to win that competition. But then we took the next step and we said, uh, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, sometimes it feels like following Jesus is choosing to lose. There are these moments, there are these decisions, there are these seasons, and, and, and actually throughout our entire life, there's just this, this thought, this idea that we have to we have to choose to lose. And Jesus was very clear about this from the very beginning. He didn't try to hide it. He didn't put it into the fine print. He was very, very clear about, about this idea of choosing to lose. And we looked at what one thing that, that Mark quoted Jesus as saying last week, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. So for the follower of Jesus, the question is not, will you win or lose? The question for the follower of Jesus is, what will you choose? to lose. What are you going to choose to lose? And, and that, was, that was your homework. That was our homework last week was to answer that question. What will you choose or what are you choosing to lose as you follow Jesus? Specifically right now, if, if losing something now, even if it's our life, sets us up to gain something better later, what are you, what are you choosing to lose? And if you're not willing to choose to lose something now, I think you owe it to yourself to figure out what you're giving up later. I think you owe that to yourself if you're a follower of Jesus. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus, this is one of the reasons that maybe you don't want to follow Jesus. It's, it's, it's too hard. It's too difficult. It's, maybe it's too confusing. What does it mean to lose my life and save it, right? But for those of us who are followers of Jesus, what, is it, what does it look like for us to lose, to discover what it is that we'll lose. Now, if that is not challenging slash thought-provoking slash whatever word you want to say, um, this week I'm going to ratchet it up a little bit more, okay? Um, this week, as I was preparing, the word that kept coming back to my mind was discomfort. Um, this is just uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable for me. Um, maybe it's uncomfortable for some of us, depending on where we find ourselves, um, but I, instead of telling you outright what it is, I thought we might discover it together uh, through one of the most familiar passages, one of the most familiar stories um, in the New Testament. Um, many of you know this story, but uh, the context of the story is just as important. So I want to tell you the context of the story, and then we'll look at uh, the actual story. So starts with John the Baptist. Jesus's cousin is beheaded, and that creates emotions in Jesus. There's mourning, there's sadness. 
And um, we're told that Jesus and the disciples go to find a solitary place. They, they're, they're, they're around the Sea of Galilee. They get in a boat. They go to find a solitary place. But there's this crowd, and I just kind of envision this crowd walking along the banks of the Sea of Galilee following the boat where they were going um, because they'd heard Jesus could heal people. And they, they follow Jesus to where they get off on the shore. And um, Jesus is, is mourning. He's tired. But we're told that he saw the crowds and he had compassion on them. And he healed their sick. And this went on uh, for most of the day. Uh, we don't really know how long, but it went on for most of the day. And the disciples eventually go to Jesus and say, Jesus, um, we got to dismiss these folks. It's, it's going to get dark soon. Um, we're out in the middle of nowhere. We're, we're far from any kind of a village. Um, there's no way we can feed them. They're hungry. We need to let these people go. And Jesus looks at them. Remember this? What does he say? You feed them. You feed them. And we're told in, in John's gospel, we're told that that was a test. That Jesus already knew what he was going to do, but he wanted to test his disciples. He wanted to see what they would do. And so they start talking about how expensive that would be. There's no way we can buy enough food. There's just no way that this could happen. And so Jesus bails them out and says, okay, what do you have? And they bring this little guy up, and he was obviously planned better than everybody else because he had five loaves of bread and two fish. And Jesus says, bring it to me. And Jesus takes the loaves and he takes the fish, and he looks up to heaven, and he gives thanks, and then he breaks it up. And who does he give it to? The disciples. He gives it to the disciples, and the disciples give it to the people. And we're told that that day, 5,000 men plus women and children are satisfied by what they eat from the five loaves of bread and the two fish. And on top of that, there's 12 basketfuls left over. Now, I've had a lot of good days in my 20 years of ministry. I have never had a day like that. Right? Like, I've never had all kinds of people getting healed and, and, you know, feeding people with, you know, a happy meal turned into a Woodstock-worthy lunch. That's never happened before in, in 20 years of ministry. But what happened next? That's actually what I want us to focus on. So Matthew, as an eyewitness to all of this, records what happens next. Immediately, and you should underline that phrase, that's important. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. Apparently, Jesus felt some kind of an urgency to get them out of there. Um, again, we're told in one of the Gospels that um, the crowd there wanted to force Jesus to be king, and he knew it was not his time. So for some reason, Jesus tells them to get out of there. We'll come back to that in a minute. And again, Jesus is exhausted. He was trying to get away before, but now he's had a really long day of ministry. So as he often did, after he dismissed them, the disciples, or in the crowd, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. And later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Now, I've heard this story since I was a little kid, and I've always had this picture in my mind of how it worked, of how it looked. And I, I picture, you know, this really big body of water. And Jesus is a long ways away. And he uses his, his God-like lenses to focus in on the disciples that are so, so far away. And then I saw the, the Sea of Galilee with my own eyes last 
summer. And here's one of the pictures that I took. This is actually at the spot that's traditionally known as the spot where, as we're going to see in a minute, Peter walked on water. Um, and there's actually a monastery there. There's a, there's a church there, and it's really touristy, so it kind of feels less spiritual than I thought it would. But I, I took this picture, and you can see, like, all in the distance, you can see the mountains. You can actually see a boat there if you squint really, really hard in the back seat or the back row. Um, back seat, that's terrible. You're not in the back seat. You're in the back row. You can see... Uh, you can see a boat there, but beyond the boat, there's, there's the, the, this mountain range, right? So Sea of Galilee, it's only about seven miles wide, 13 miles long. That's not real big. If you've ever been to Lake Tahoe, it's shaped like Lake Tahoe, but it's a third of the size. And I stood on the north, south, and west sides of the Sea of Galilee, and, and I, could, I thought, I, I bet I could hit a golf ball across that way. <laughs> it's way further than that, but it looks closer, right? So this idea that, that Jesus is up on this hillside and he sees the disciples, like I'm standing there, I'm thinking, yeah, that's ob- this, this is obviously this, this could happen. He sees these, these the, some of them experienced fishermen struggling to cross the sea. It should have only taken them about two hours max to get where they're going. Again, experienced, experienced oarsmen, experienced fishermen, they could have got there in an hour. But two hours max. And we're told shortly before dawn. That language means the fourth watch of the night. So we're talking 3 a.m., which means they've been struggling on the lake for 10 hours. Should have taken them two. They're too far out to turn around and come back, but they're not making as much progress as they want to to get to where they want to be. And I just imagine they're frustrated, they're tired, they're aggravated. They've been out there too long. And where in the world is Jesus? He's the one who told us to go. Where is he at? Here's where he is. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him, when Matthew saw him, because he was there, and Matthew wanted us to to know how they felt, when the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. I don't blame them. I think that's how I would feel. If I was frustrated, if it's three o'clock in the morning, I'm on a lake, and I see somebody walking on the water, I would say the same thing, it's a ghost. I would say the exact same thing, okay? And then, this is probably the most important part of the story. So I don't want you to miss this. Look at Jesus' response to them. What does he say? Jesus immediately, there it is again, immediately said to them, take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Take courage. It's I. Don't be afraid. Jesus uses this phrase often throughout the New Testament. And he usually uses it in a situation that looked impossible. He used it um, when he healed a paralytic. He used it when he healed a blind man. He used it with um, one of the synagogue leaders' um, daughters who had just died right before he resurrects her. He brings her back to life. He uses it with his disciples when they start to face persecution on their their missionary journeys. He uses it with Paul in Acts before Paul is shipped off to Rome and eventually executed. It's translated a lot of different ways throughout the New Testament. Take heart, take comfort, be of good cheer, take courage. Jesus used this phrase a lot. A lot of situations, but almost every situation, it just looked impossible. And then 
Mark includes a detail I think is just so important. So they're terrified after they see Jesus walk on the water. Then Mark tells us they were completely amazed for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. Kind of a curious thing to say. Why does he include that? And, and I got to be honest, I don't have any evidence for this, but I wonder if this is why Jesus told them to leave immediately. I wonder if Jesus looked them in the eyes and thought, they're not getting it. They're just not getting it. I mean, think about the day they had. They watched, and it wasn't the first day that they were seen it, but they watched person after person after person after person be healed. Then they saw 5,000 people plus fed with a happy meal, right? Mark doesn't say they're amazed until this moment. Were they not amazed by all the other stuff? Was that just, huh, that guy's leg just grew back. That deaf guy can now hear. Were they not amazed by that? The, the word understood, really, really unique word. The Greek word is suniemi. We don't have a great English equivalent, but it means to bring together or um, to set together, to join together in your mind. So Mark is saying they hadn't made the connection. They hadn't joined together in their minds what had just happened with feeding the 5,000 and Jesus walking on water. They hadn't connected the dots between the miracle they were a part of earlier in the day and the miracle they're looking at right in front of them. They hadn't made the connection between what Jesus had already done and what Jesus was capable of doing, even though it was happening right in front of them. And isn't it true? We do the same thing. We, we do this same thing. We miss the connection between what Jesus has done in the past and what we hope, what we think, what we want him to do in the future, or maybe even in the present. We, we fail to connect the dots. Many of us, we believe Jesus died on the cross and that accomplished something for us. That's, that, that, that paid the penalty of our sin. That Jesus was the full and final sacrifice for sin. That's a pretty amazing thing to believe. Many of us believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And that accomplished something for us. That he was resurrected. And for those who are in Christ, when we die, we will be resurrected. That's an amazing thing to believe. But God, you want me to love my neighbor as myself? You want me to pray for those who persecute me and love my enemy? Are they a Democrat? <laughs> they were Republican? I don't know about that, Lord. You, you want me to turn the other cheek? I don't know. I think, I think that's a little radical, Jesus. We fail to make the connection between what we believe Jesus has done in the past and the steps of obedience he's asking us to do today. We do the same thing. Let's come back to that in a second, okay? We'll come back to that in a second. I want to show you the guy who did connect the dots. Some of you know what happens next because this story is so familiar. But there's one guy who connected the dots. It's the same guy who Jesus said last week, get behind me, Satan. Peter had some hot and cold days. Look at this. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Peter had seen the same miracles the other disciples had seen. 
Not just that day. All the other days, they'd seen him raise people from the dead, cast out demons, turn water into wine, appear out of nowhere, read people's minds, all kinds of unbelievable things. But Peter was the only one who connected the dots between what Jesus had done and what he believed Jesus could do. He was the only one. And, and, and Jesus answers him with one word. Come on. Come. Peter had a prayer request, and Jesus answered it with one word. Come. Now, here's what we need to remember, because the this, this story is so familiar and we're so comfortable with it. Here's what we need to remember. Peter did not know how to walk on water. Right? Like, he'd never done this before. This was a brand new experience for him. He'd he'd never done this before. But Jesus' instructions were crystal clear. And Peter was crystal clear on who said it. So, what does he do? Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came towards Jesus. He didn't know how to do this. He'd never walked on water before. But for a second, for five seconds, for a brief moment, we don't know how long, Peter... Walked on water. And this is what you see throughout Scripture. This is, this is, there's a bits and pieces of it that I've seen um, in my own life. You see it throughout church history, time and time and time again. The how usually follows obedience. The how. Okay, how am I gonna do this? It's, It's not until we obey, it's not until we step over the side of the boat that we discover how we're going to do what Jesus asks us to do. But how, what, what, what do we normally do? Maybe it's just me. I'll admit this. I normally want the how before I obey. Lord, how am I supposed to turn the other cheek? Lord, how am I supposed to love my neighbor? How, how, how? And we how ourselves out of obeying. Now, I've never walked on water. Um, I've never taught anybody to walk on water. I'm a rookie when it comes to all of that. But I am a two-time all-pro dad at teaching two little humans how to walk on land. Okay? My 15-year-old and 18-year-old can walk perfectly most of the time. Right? So I think there's a correlation between teaching toddlers how to walk and adults and teenagers learning how to walk in obedience to Jesus. Because there was a period where my kids did not want to walk. They had the ability to. They'd shown that they could do it, but but they were perfectly comfortable. You know the index finger thing that you hold their hands above their head and you help them walk? Or or they were perfectly comfortable walking along the edge of the coffee table or the fireplace. They were perfectly comfortable doing that. But the second you tried to get them to walk on their own, what do they do? back on the floor and crawling again. Because that's what's comfortable. That's what's safe. That's what they know, right? But what I learned and what many of you parents learned is if you can get them to focus on the one calling to them, if you can get them to say, come on, trust me, it's okay, you can do it, come on, and you do that over and over and over and over and over again, eventually they'll start walking. And then they practice that over and over and over again. And then they just, it looks like it's completely natural. But it starts by letting go of the safety. 
It starts by getting outside of their comfort zone. It starts by as, as much as their little brains can figure out. It starts with, I just, I just got to let go of this in order to do that. In the same way, when we make the connection between who is calling us, who is asking us to take a step of obedience, and what he's capable of, what he's shown he's trustworthy of, that's when it clicked. Peter, and, and again, I don't know how it worked, but Peter took comfort in the fact that Jesus was the one out on the water calling to him, which meant he had to choose to lose the comfort of the boat. And there it is. Choosing to follow Jesus, choosing to obey, many times includes choosing to lose the comfort of the boat. And, and, and many times, again, maybe I'm just talking to myself here, many times we take comfort in things that keep us from obeying. We take comfort in a job. Um, we take comfort in uh, a relationship, in financial security, uh, a way of life. And to follow Jesus, to obey, means choosing to lose comfort in that thing. And sometimes choosing to follow Jesus involves choosing to lose comfort in those things, which begs the question... What do you fear losing? Like, what is that thing? What is that person? What are those things that scares you the most when you think about losing it? What is that thing for you? What is that, those, what are those things? That thing, I think, might be your boat. And Peter had to decide if he was going to take a step of obedience or take comfort in the boat, sitting in what he knew, in what he'd taken security in, and what he was good at. He had to choose because those two things are mutually exclusive. Couldn't take comfort in both, and neither can we. That obedience to Jesus many times involves losing comfort in some other area of your life, of my life. And, and, and some of you, like you're sitting here right now, and you're going, Tim, finish the story. Because you know the rest of the story, right? And I'm going to finish the story. But I just want to call this out because some of us use the end of the story as an excuse to stay in the boat. I don't think it's an excuse to stay in the boat. Here's how it ends. Peter took his eyes off of Jesus, right? He starts looking at the wind and the waves. He stops focusing on the one who called him. He starts focusing on the how. Like, how in the world am I doing this instead of the who that's calling me? And Jesus, you of little faith, you little faither, what it says. It's the actual Greek. You little faither. Why did you doubt? Before he said any of that, what does it say? Jesus reached out his hand and he caught him. Do you know how Jesus could reach out his hand and catch him? <laughs> because he wasn't in the boat. He was on the water and it was dangerous. But that's where Jesus was. He was on the water. Peter failed. But there were 11 other bigger failures in the boat. Peter failed because he took his eyes off of Jesus. Yeah, absolutely. But there were 11 bigger failures sitting in the boat. Peter at least connected the dots. At least he got to walk on water. Nobody else since or before has walked on water. So did he fail? Yeah, maybe. But I think there were 11 bigger failures. So the question is, what's our boat? What's your boat? 
What's that thing? What's that person? What's that, that, that environment that if you stepped outside of it, it would put your stomach in your throat? But you know it's something Jesus is calling you to. What's the thing? What's the person? What's the place? What's the decision he's calling you to, but it requires you to leave the comfort of your boat? What is that for you? And, and I just made a list to help you get started. I know some of you don't like it when I make lists, but I brought one anyway. Okay? And I'm saying this, you might not identify with any of them, but this is just to help get us started. For some of you, your boat is leaving a job. And the reason you need to leave a job is because there's so much temptation there. There's a temptation to, to rely on money. There's too much of a temptation to, to, work, to become a workaholic. Or maybe it's a person that brings about a sexual temptation. And you need to leave that job. And you know you need to leave that job. But it's comfortable. It's safe. But you know Jesus is calling you to step out of that boat. For some of you, um, it's breaking up with a person you're dating. And there's, there's nobody else on the horizon that you're going to. You just know. You just know. This isn't the person I'm supposed to be with, but you've taken comfort, you've taken security in that relationship. That's your boat. And you know Jesus is calling you to step out of it. For some of you, it's giving sacrificially. And to be clear, I am not talking about giving to the church. If that's what you think, just take it off the table. There's somebody, there's something, there's, there's something out there that has asked you to give to it, and you can do it, but it's a little bit sacrificial. Because it's sacrificial because you can't do that thing over there. And you know it'll be good for you. And you know they need it. But you're afraid. You don't want to step out of that boat. For some of you, it's going on a missions trip. You've never taken the step. You've, you've felt it. You, you, you feel this nudge every time we talk about it or every time you hear somebody else talk about it. And you're just, you're just chicken. That's all there is to it. You're a chicken right? You are. That's the truth. Jesus is saying, come on, I want you to do this with me. Let's go together. And you go, yeah, but what about raising the money? And what about the danger? And what about diseases? And what about, and what about, and what about? The name of your boat is what about? (laughs) For some of you, it's moving your family. And I don't know why. I don't know why. Something with your kids, something in your neighborhood. I don't know why, but you found security there and Jesus is calling you out of the boat. For some of you, it's starting a business. It's, it's, it's starting a business to create incredible resources that Jesus can use to impact the world and his kingdom. And he's waiting for you to get out of the boat. That's what he's calling you to. For some of you, it's the opposite. It's leaving your business. It's leaving your job and going into ministry. And you felt nudged, you felt, you know, maybe I'm supposed to be a pastor, maybe I'm supposed to be a missionary, I'm supposed to be a full-time Christian worker, and you're scared to death to do that. And here's one of the reasons you're scared to death, because you can't figure out how to make the numbers work. But you know, that's your step of obedience. For some of you, I almost left this one off, but I'm going to say it anyway, for some of you, it's a health thing. You know you need to start exercising. You need to start eating right. You know you need to quit smoking. You know you need to quit drinking. You know this is the area of your life that Jesus is calling to you from on the water. But you've just become so comfortable. 
and you're scared to death to swing your leg over the side of the boat and see what happens. Peter never figured out how to walk on water. You realize that? He never, he never figured it out, but he walked on water because he chose to focus on the one calling him. His obedience was what activated God's power in his life. Even if it was short-lived, he did something he could never do on his own, and I just think the same is true for us, that, that the how usually comes after obedience. So what's the thing? What's the thing Jesus is calling you to do, to leave behind, to give up, or to pursue, to start, to stop? It keeps coming up. Other people have affirmed it. It's not some crazy idea that you've come up with on your own. Like you're, you're, you're scared to death to even talk about it, but you know, you know this is an obedience thing for you. My encouragement is, is don't let the winds of discomfort and the waves of doubt keep you from obeying. Don't be like the 11. Be like Peter. Even if you fail, be like Peter. Because you know what Jesus has done in the past. You know what he's capable of. And you know that you know that you know. He's, he's calling you. He's nudging you. He's, <clears throat> get out of the boat. Get out of the boat. And, and, and here's, here's, here's the last thing I'll say, and then we're done. I think Jesus still says to us today, take courage. It's a high. Don't be afraid. Take courage. Take heart. Be of good cheer. It really is me calling you to this. Don't be afraid. Take courage. It's I. Don't be afraid. So, Father, um, wherever this lands, <laughs> it is so much easier for me to sit up here and for us to sit here and listen and talk about this than it is to go and to do this. So my prayer is that through your spirit, through the conversations that we have from now on, through, through wise, godly counsel, through wisdom that you've bestowed on your people, that we would simply know what to do with this. Many of us already do. But God, I pray that you would help us to know what to do with it. And then the courage, not in and of ourselves, but the courage that you provide for us that we continue to focus on the who is calling us the one who, 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 who calls us out onto the water. We focus on you, your voice, your trustworthiness, your track record, and that we simply follow, we simply obey, whatever that next step is. And in the end, this is about what you are doing in and through us, not what we do. It's about what you do in and through us for your glory, for your kingdom, for your benefit, for your majesty and your power alone. God, help us to be doers of your word, not simply hearers. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a great week. You're dismissed. <laughs>